Welcome everyone to SPAS Community Webinar. Uh, today we're talking about um, the, how we improve the user experience through testing. And I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Richard London. Hi. Hi. And uh, Lee Russell. How are you doing? Okay. Um, so for those that are listening and watching, so this is going out as a, a webinar. Um, if you are listening uh, on this as part of a podcast, then we'll obviously try to explain anything that we're showing visually. Uh, but please do uh, get in touch if you want to see any of those or watch the webinar. So podcasting is a bit of a new thing for us, um, and obviously as part of a podcast you won't be able to ask questions, but I will be asking people who are on the webinar to ask us questions at any point. So firing your questions for these guys as we go through. I come up on the little screen here for me and I can ask them at any time. So uh, if you're shy, don't, you know, just get in touch afterwards. So let's get on to introductions and get on to the main presentation. So Rich, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm uh, Rich. I'm the head of design here at BTL. Um, I've been here a number of years, and uh, I oversee the um, UX process and UI as well within the product across all the designers that we have here at BTL. Okay, excellent. And, um, and I'm Lee Russell, so I'm a user experience designer at BTL. Um, been working here just under two years um, and work with a couple of the product development teams um, and under Rich's guidance as well. Okay, and I will point out that just before we went live, uh, Lee did comment <laughs> on the fact that you know, Rich has been here half of Lee's life. So, uh, so I, I don't know how the appraisal is going to go after this, but um, yeah, it should be interesting. But, um, excellent. So let's talk about the design team. Um, what is what is the role of the design team and the development of Surpass? Um, so we, we work um, with product refinement teams who have a number of, view, number of key stakeholders, so they're technical architects, product communication teams, product owners, um, and we have a designer in there, and we work across the uh, about three teams per designer, so we have a total of about 26 uh, development teams, uh, and they'll get the requirements in from the clients and they'll work through those and refine those. We're in communication with the with the development teams as well. Okay, okay, right. And what's your kind of role in this as well? Then? So whilst um, we work, as, as Richard said, with four agile, or well, three to four agile teams each, um, so that'll be me working with the product owners and directly with the solutions TAs and the development teams, um, basically gathering the requirements, refining them, coming up with a solution, getting feedback from the team, hopefully feedback from the customer, um, live services and sales and where we can, um, to refine that solution and help support the development team in, in producing that and getting it into the product. Okay, and you mentioned TAs in there, that's technical architects, mm -hmm. isn't it? So um, product owners, we, you know, we've, we've done a lot on product owners recently. We had a really good webinar with uh, Sophie and Rebecca, so please do watch that if you want to kind of learn a bit more about that team's function. And we've had lots of webinars about the kind of um, agile functions as well. So there's one, I think it was back... Uh, a while ago with Lauren and Kirk when Kirk was here. That was about kind of the agile process. So there's lots of resources out there if you want to learn a bit more about that structure. But I suppose you're, so you're working alongside these these teams in um, in kind of dealing with the, the, the features that are coming through, offering advice, research, doing the user experience, the UI mm -hmm. design. Um, so lots of kind of interactions. Are you, what's your, are you communicating with them on a regular basis? Because you know, some of these are remote teams, aren't they? Yeah, I think that, 
is an interesting <coughs> challenge with working with BTL. You know, some of my teams are in India, some of them are in Russia. Um, I've worked with teams here in uh, Shipley. Our clients can be based in America, um, you know, all over Europe as well. Mm. So I think handling that communication is is an interesting challenge. And mm. yeah, a lot of my days will be spent kind of within meetings with the, what we call the product refinement team, um, as well as uh, kind of at my desk doing design work or doing on-site visits with clients or um, Skype calls with clients to do some user testing sessions. So it's quite varied. It's an interesting job in that regard. So do you get out to see, you say with the clients, so you're getting out to see them on a, a regular basis? So what kind of, what kind of time scale? As often as we can. Like, yeah. if you give us the chance, we'll go and meet clients. <laughs> no, really, like... Um, it it, pr- it, it uh, poses an interesting uh, problem in that so, some of our users are, you know, quite remote um, and maybe in a, in, in a different country or continent. And so we've had to try and adapt the way that we try and work and, and doing remote user testing. is not It's not um, kind of the, the purest form, but at least it's... It's some form of kind of testing that we're actually getting people to look at the stuff that we're doing. I think you have to be a pragmatist in as a user experience designer. It's easy to get to the point where you're only doing thinking everything in the most proper and yeah. uh, you know best way possible. But I think sometimes you have to be a realist and say, I don't have the budget or the time to fly to America all of the yeah. time. Yeah. I, it's I can get you on a Skype call. Um, we but can do that just as well as a face-to-face. But the, uh, it's, uh, face-to-face is important, at least establishing that once in the kind of early, early mm-hmm. stages, because you learn a lot about that person, don't yeah. you? Um, so I think there's an open invitation there. So if, um, if any of you out there want uh, user experience design team to come along, obviously subject to budget, we'd love to get you out more and often, really. Um, okay, so some great kind of process and working with those teams but what kind of tools and techniques do you use as part of when you're going about your task what kind of things are you doing there uh, yeah so I think the design process is one of stages really um, you know I think one of the most basic co- like tools that we have is conversations with stakeholders people that are going to be involved with using it um, gathering the requirements um, the technical side of things you know what are the constraints um, and then from there it's usually I try personally, and every designer I think uses slightly different tools, and it's not always right to use all of the tools all of the time. Um, but things like sketches, wireframe sketches on a whiteboard in a room with some people, just to get basic ideas out. You want to try and get your as many ideas out as possible, get the bad ideas out of the way, kind of proceed with the good before you start doing the more time-intensive things like wireframing, creating prototypes in our software. Um, and then we can use those prototypes to start further refinement um, or, you know, the testing sessions, as well as speaking with people like Live Services to do reports um, on our users. So maybe we're designing a feature we need to know who uses um, what page and, and from what organization. I think that's yeah. uh, really useful as well. We so use, things like heat maps and stuff. Yeah, we use um, the several kind of sessions that we run, and one of them is like a, a design-led session where we'll just get pens and paper out and get other people, not just designers, to kind of come up with some ideas and then discuss those. So we'll present a problem and then get them to kind of sketch through that. And it kind of gets more people involved in that process, mm. in that ideation process as well. So it's, but it's problem-led thinking, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's, I've always kind of thought of myself, it's imperative that you go from that problem-led yeah, and it's and it's re. I think our job really is more facilitation of 
taking that problem and consistently making everyone consider the user as much as possible back in that. Because at the end of the day, that's who the solution has to work for. And it's very easy to get that abstracted and, and forget that and mm. just look at how the database is going to be structured, look at the calls to an API that is going to be made mm. when you know someone's going to have to sit at their desk for seven hours and actually work with this software day in, day out. So I think we're the champions of the user, um, but also we don't want to be the only ones owning design. Uh, we want everyone within the organization to care about that because if it's only us caring about the user, then we've kind of lost the battle already. So. Okay, so and our kind of our mission is to significantly improve the user experience for everyone, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So you're having to think about everyone in that stage so whether it's the someone in the administration team um, who is setting up the content or the authoring team or the subject matter expert who may have kind of periodic um, access to the platform through to the candidate um, and all these different users in the, in the stages aren't there so yeah there's lots of touch points within this <coughs> application and the software and the platform as a whole um, and like Lou was saying you know there's, there's certain people who are using this software uh, on a daily basis for extended periods of time and sometimes you can kind of forget that that's yeah. that's actually happening and mm -hmm. uh, that's why it's really key to kind of understand and, and almost empathize with those people and get out you know what their issues are and how their their processes are mm -hmm. and then obviously the most important user for us is kind of the candidate in that you know they're, si they're sitting down and they're taking a test that is obviously something that is potentially life-changing for them so you know, it's quite key that we make sure that, you know, that kind of experience is protected as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like there's consequences to the design decisions you make. Um, and I think the more context of use you can get. So it would be quite easy for us to design everything like you're going to use it on, you know, a high definition TV and all of the information we want to put in here is going to be perfectly displayed when the reality is it's usually on a kind of lower end spec laptop mm. in a place with poor internet connectivity. Mm. So how do you manage handling the vast amount of data that we do with those constraints? And that's where I think good design comes from is when you have solid constraints mm. in place. That's when you ha you do your best work because you have to come up with innovative solutions to that. So approximately how many post-it notes do you get through? <laughs> uh, and Sharpies. Thousands. <laughs> we've got a massive box. We've got to the point now I think we've got secret stashes all over the office in different <laughs> buildings. So well, I've been, I've been, supply. I know I've been supplying you with... Um, there's a, a, a retailer nearby who's been selling off uh, cheap versions of uh, Sharpies. <laughs> I've been going down and buying a, a bucket loads because I need them for the conference as well. Which is another good plug for the con conference. So uh, register now. Um, so I, okay, you gave, when we talked about it earlier, you kind of gave me a list. So we've got things like usability reports and uh, wireframes and user flows, um, videos of tests, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So when we're speaking with users, I think it's key to think about how you're recording that information. So if you're doing usability tests, you're usually sitting down with someone for an hour, an hour and a half, giving them a task. You'll have someone watching and making notes. Mm. And as you speak and kind of help them through the task and kind of get involved with that, it's very easy to get fixated on certain details of changes that they're suggesting. It's quite exciting as a yeah. designer to say, we can improve this, this and this, and walk away and forget half the information. So, you know, recording that process then re-watching it with the whole team yeah. because I might have a personal bias of saying, well, I think the solution to this problem is X yeah. and then the team might watch it and say, well, is that really the case? Um, that's probably your preferred solution. That's why you've convinced yourself that's right, but maybe 
explore this direction. Yeah. Um, so I think documenting a lot of what we do and then trying to, as I said, we, we're the facilitators of design. So we can collect this information and then we try and get it out to within the business and increase knowledge of what users are actually doing with our products. It's um, about context as well. Um, you know, you, historically, people don't really, when we're trying to do user testing, they don't quite understand you know, you think that we're kind of checking up on them, we're wanting to sit with them and see what they do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You know, it's it's understanding what they're actually doing, their process. It's not a case of kind of sitting around a, a table in front of a screen and, and just pointing out everything that's wrong with something. It's kind of understanding why it's wrong. That's, mm. It's important to understand the why. Yeah, constructive feedback, isn't yeah. it? It's always the um, design wall. Um, I've noticed um, there's a large space by your office that seems to get filled up with more post-it notes and, and paper. <laughs> Just tell me what you've been doing up to, up to that. Um, so, yeah, I think this is an initiative that we've taken on as a design team. So we have internal design critiques of the work. We call them design show-and-tells, but it's mm. really, you know... Our design is very easily just sitting on our hard drive. We all work in our own little silos with our own little teams, um, and it can be difficult when we've got a team of 12 designers to keep track of what everyone is doing and if your work is going to affect my work and are we moving the product in a positive direction. So this is to kind of solve that problem and let the rest of the business know what we're working on. Um, Because I think, you know, you can't create something in a vacuum. You have to have critique. And if you're not getting critique, you're not really collaborating with the rest of the business. And um, it's easy for someone to walk past and say, oh, I had a conversation with a client two years ago. This would really help them. Or, you know, this client really struggles with this aspect of our software. Um, So it's just a way of kind of getting it it off hard drives, making it a physical thing and, and letting everyone own a design and feedback on it because um, yeah. it's all valid input. I mean, I think a lot of people have been doing. I, you know, personally, I've been writing a few notes uh, and things on there. So Thank you. Can I have my wall back? <laughs> but um, um, but uh, things like um, empathy. I mean, you mentioned empathy. Empathy maps are something that um, has cropped up recently as well. And Kat's done a recording. So um, I'll tell you a bit more about this later. But there is a recording going out soon of one of the design team talking through empathy maps. But do you want to tell us now, Rich, about what is an empathy map? So it's just kind of understanding a user, their thoughts and feelings and their, their, their pain points as well and trying to, and we've actually used that on the, um, on the design wall for item authoring. So under, uh, trying to understand our users better mm. and trying to work out, you know, not, not, they're not like personas, but it, I, I feel as though they are more, um, they're more beneficial for us as part of the design process to mm. understand how you, what the users are thinking about. And, and Personas are quite pigeonholing, aren't they? You almost can walk away going, well, there's only four people out there that you know, that matter, but I think this gives you a bit more of a kind of a wider yes, view, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, because the, we have <coughs> so many clients and there are so many, say, for example, in item authoring, like we've done already, we... You know, there's lots of different people with slightly different needs, and with that, you're trying to get more of a coverage rather than just, you know, a single person who is doing this. Um, mm. And they can kind of change as well. I feel as though they're more relevant for us. Yeah, I definitely think they get used more um, in the refinement process. It's a good jumping off point when you're asking a question does this solution actually work for the people we're trying to design it for? Um, you know, I think a good example is the help site recently that we've been doing, uh, helping the um, the product comms team on, mm. um, thinking about who is going to be using the help site, 
what are they going to be worried about, thinking about what's the time constraints, yeah. what are their managers kind of thinking um, when they're using this product allows you to say, well, does this actually solve, make this better or make this worse? Yeah. Um, it, again, it just brings that human mm. user element back into our conversation. So it's a tool to do that. And the, um, for the help side, if you, um, we are doing a lot of work on that at the moment, like Lee say. So uh, at the conference, uh, Georgie and Tom are going to introduce that on day one. Uh, and then there's going to be a bit of a, an opportunity later on in the conference, on day two, to actually kind of get your hands on some of the work they've been doing on that. So um, what's quite nice about this kind of conversation, having it ahead of the conference, is it gives you a bit of context behind the, the fact that these guys have been working really hard to put together a lot of ideas and designs, and you know, they want to put those in front of you. And you know, it just helps you understand the, some of the background that's gone into that. So just before we move on then, because we're going to look at some examples, what's your favourite what, favorite tool you know, as part of the kind of... Uh, that, that journey. What, what's your favourite approach? Mine, mine is definitely, I think, usability studies. So actually sitting down in more of a formal setting, setting a task, recording it, maybe doing ten or so of those, and then um, having a synthesis session with the rest of the design team. Because I think it really does, like no other tool, show you where the problems are within your design. Yeah. And you can immediately see where things aren't working. That weren't um, obvious to you before um, and off the back of that you know it's quite fun to have versions of your mock-ups and, and go into you know four or five six versions and feel like every time it's getting better you feel like yeah. you're doing a better job um, I, I personally what's, that's your, my favorite? what's favorite? your favorite Richard? I probably like the um, user flows because it allows me to kind of work out in a logical way you know how something is going to be structured and and the flow that a user will take because then that will inform the design that I'm you know potentially going to do. But I do like a good post-it note session <laughs> because you know you'll get people who will just want to just you know tap into into Word and but you're getting people interactive and uh, uh, and you know involved in those sessions and you get a lot more out of them. Yeah, I've been we've been using Jamboard for the conference planning, uh, which is basically a digital post-it note yeah. product from Google um, and yeah, I think it's been that kind of stuff has been brilliant for mm -hmm. just keeping a track on things but also mm. just dumping those ideas out and it is, a, it is an is quick iterative process. So let's t have a look at some of these screens. So obviously for those who are listening on the, uh, the podcast um, we can um, put a link into some of these screens and you'll be able to link to the, the, the jump to the, straight to the webinar if you want to watch this directly but um, so we've got here, what are we looking at here then uh, Lee? Uh, so these are a couple of example screens, so before and afters from the test creation, what I'm calling test creation 2.0. So um, with the product at the minute, we're doing a lot of work to convert screens from flash-based architecture into um, our HTML architecture. Um, and I think it highlights what conversations with users actually does for your design. So we'd come up with this concept um, of you know initially on this screen so essentially a lot of our screens are how you handle masses of data yeah data grid is the kind of way to do that and the initial concept was make it kind of simple give you a couple of um, actions you can take on that data grid uh, but let you drill into that data from there and I think from conversations with users what we found is the sheer scale of what people are doing yeah. um, is beyond what I, I think we have been used to designing for. Yeah. And so you can see in the afters that really what we um, kind of move towards is 
a much more information, uh, like it handles information uh, density better. Uh, so we've combined two separate screens into one, um, but then nested information within uh, the top level information of tests. So your test forms are now directly linked in a table to the tests. Um, it gives you the power uh, user mode so you can directly edit information in the table rather than having to dive you know, five screens deep to actually make a change to something like a status or the name um, or the reference, etc. Allowing you to customize your, your columns and headers and make that much more searchable and, and um, interactive. And I think, you know, it's only when you start talking to users that you realize your design isn't supporting someone uh, doing this at scale. You would never be able to come up with that. Um, it not working for, for a user that's you know, doing a ch one option change on 80 test forms yeah. if you didn't speak to someone doing that day in, day out, and you know, it's kind of banging their head on their keyboard having to do this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it really illustrates why this is important. This is, I think, version four now of this concept. Yeah. And every time you can see slight improvements going into that, um, refining it further and further. And when the, when the original, so we, yeah, I suppose when the original piece of work was done, you know, we, in terms of the team that were looking at this, Rich, how big was the team then who were, was kind of looking after UX? Uh, probably two. Two of you. Yeah. Okay. So I, not only is the obviously we've got the scale of development's gone up, but yeah, the size of the teams have, have gone up to, to grow, have grown to reflect that, haven't they? Yeah. And I suppose the, were you using all the tools and techniques we've talked about? You would have been using some of them because you were, you were, you know, trained designers at that point. But were you using all of those techniques in those initial kind of design and development of those? Um, no, no, we weren't because, you know, just <coughs> with so few uh, team members, you can't, you you can't do all of the things. You can't be quite as thorough as you as you like to be. And I think now with the scale of the team, we're able to do some of these um, more in-depth uh, testing and usability reports, etc. Um, that you know Lee's been talking about. So it's it's kind of it's of a benefit to us and also a benefit to the product as well. Mm. And a little bit more people are now using it as well. So you mean say about scale? You know, it, you, yeah. It's, You'd have been going off and asking two people, five people, or something, because yeah, there weren't that many. It's certainly in test creation. That's it's not a screen that's used by uh, a lot of people in an organisation, uh, unless they've got a lot of test forms. Mm -hmm. yeah. But now we've grown so much, or the, you know, the, the user base and the, the, the number of the volume going through there. You know, what we're at, 24 million tests delivered now. Yeah, that's there's going to be a lot of test forms off the back of that. So, mm. so you've you've basically taken what was there before, and you've just re-engineered it for for the, the real world now really haven't you that's the yeah. kind of approach you take and I think it's like putting it out there <clears throat> for people that use these screens day in day out having a conversation with them that is the real world context that lets you evaluate your design objectively and say is this good or bad I don't I can it's quite easy to get attached to a design I think yeah. and kind of not want to change it because you feel like the decisions you made were right but it's very hard to hold those convictions when you have a user saying that's not going to work yeah. or look at this this is how we actually do things and so, they and the design itself is kind of you know is is led by the the fact that we did speak to users early on and we have the, the test wizards well. yeah, yeah and at the conference last year we you know we spoke to them and they said well we use test wizard because it's quick to get through to a point and then we might make some final tweaks yeah. 
yeah. within uh, within test creation. And so we've kind of taken that and we've you know almost run with it and said mm-hmm. right, well we feel as though this is a good way to to navigate this screen. Okay, so test form structure is just another example before and after. Uh, do you want to walk me through? What we've, what we've done that. Yeah, so as Rich was saying, kind of the the initial concept was very, you know, keep this uh, very similar to the test wizard. Um, and I think as we've tested that, so you can see this whole process had uh, four steps within it. Um, and that's the, the ones along the top, isn't it? These, these yeah. ones up here, isn't it? The test form details, find and select items, test form rules and summary. Yes. Yeah, so kind of a five-step wizard process. And through conversations with um, our users, I've actually managed to, to kind of snip that down to three, uh, three, a three-step process. And I think arguably in the next iteration, we could even go further. It's, you're trying to... F- finely balance with that you know you don't want to snip it down too much and make one screen too information dense um, but you can see things like in the before and after so we've got buttons within um, the middle of this screen which are just icon based and when you start talking to users you realize that everyone has a slightly different uh, view of what an icon means because mm. you bring all of your own mm. personal context to that so stick a label on it and just remove that ambiguity um, from from that button and things like there were some uh, improvements we thought like pinning and locking sections in your test form. Yeah. You start speaking to users and they're saying that's not really that's not really how we work. It's not really how the process goes. Um, things like ma- you know moving and sorting are very important. Um, so add that into the the mockups. Things like changing uh, the workflow status or adding a comment is really important. In the original mock-up here, they would have to navigate all the way through to summary, so the last mm. um, stage in this wizard to do that. But that can be ha- happening, you know, at any point when they're setting the options, when they're setting up the content. Um, so put that on the top level, and, and don't make me navigate five pages deep to do something, you know, I might want to do very often. Yeah. Um, things like combining the settings for each section onto this page, because users were saying. Whilst they like the interactivity of the wizard, they do like, uh, within test creation, all of the metadata that they get when constructing their parameters. Yeah. So actually having more of a powerful tool to still be able to do that, but just refining it from where we have it currently in the flash process. And I suppose what you've done there, then, if you, if you like you said, the test creation wizard is a kind of simplified uh, kind of step-by-step through route, and then they add detail. What you're saying is that you've almost put the detail on top of this kind of screen. So you can do that detail any time through the process, but you've still got that nice step-through easy process. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most interesting challenges in terms of working at BTL, is it's trying to balance so many different kinds of users. You've got the the kind of awarding organisations that, as you say, is doing one test, one test form, Mm. and, you know, they're not they're not going through, and you don't need to support the like parameters with metadata searches mm. and that you know adding a thousand items to a test and only delivering some of them. So it's like you're trying to balance that um, sense of working at scale and working in a much more smaller kind of um, precise way. Mm. So how do you make a design that actually works for both of those users? It's and it's of, hard. It's kind of perceived uh, simplicity, isn't mm. it? In that it's the the options and the complexity is there if you need it. Yeah. But you know when you first go to the screen, it is quite easy to understand because that's what you find when you when you're testing with users is 
the kind of looking all over the screen and going, well, I don't know what that does, and I'm, I'm not sure what this is, and clicking on wrong, oh, I didn't expect it to do that. Those kinds of things to strip, it's kind of stripping all those things back to just what you've, what they feel is actually needed. Yeah, I think primary it's, functions. it's important when you're handling data to give people kind of a view, a top level view first and foremost. And if I am interested in the, the more granular levels of that, Mm. Um, of that data, let me zoom into it and let me have a view dedicated to that rather than, I think, you know, sometimes there is a tendency, especially when you're more technically minded, to chuck all of the data at you all of the time. Mm. Um, and I just think that hinders you doing your, yeah. your day-to-day job a lot of the time. Okay. So this is uh, these are all going to be up for conversation at the conference. But on day two, I think we've got a user group session. So if you if you go in and you want to kind of walk through the screens and give feedback and get engaged, then please do so. Um, and likewise, if there's uh, feedback that you want to make or have conversations, I'm sure you guys are more than happy to. Yeah. Um, these guys like to chat. Yeah, they really do <laughs> like to talk with customers. So um, just on the, the so the, the status point there. So we've got draft uh, live retired, etc. Where did the initiative come from to put that as part of the kind of overall screen? What you know, where did that kind of story come from? Um, so you know, it's we talk with users, but I think there's also a lot of uh, information and knowledge within BTL that is sometimes not. Uh, it's, it's hard to kind of get when you're when you're initially doing the refinement sessions. Yeah. We're sitting on this level. We've got the account managers upstairs. Maybe we're not talking to each other. Um, so we actually conducted some interviews internally, uh, and the account management team had said that you know that it's something they talk to um, potential customers about a lot at uh, conferences is workflow status management within a test form mm. um, and and actually having that process of it's a draft it's a it's a first draft second draft review things like that um, I think you should as I say when you're trying to support people working at scale and that in kind of a, a more smaller niche way you need to have that so they might only use draft and live but someone might have a 10 stage process so how do you balance yeah. what they can do um, so it's that it's that kind of plurality, I guess. Um, so yeah, please do feel free to bend the, the ears of account managers around workflow statuses. <laughs> um, um, uh, okay, so what kind of interesting challenges do you face as part of uh, your work? Um, well, languages are, are quite um, an interesting uh, challenge for us. Mm. Um, certainly, like right to left. Uh, understanding, you know, making sure that the 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 UI is is flexible when you know different languages have been applied. Mm-hmm. Certainly in delivery as well, yeah. we have it sometimes where buttons get, you know, the uh, wording gets chopped and it just it, it the meaning is changed. Um, so that's an interesting challenge for us. I've been doing a lot of work with right to left language support at the moment mm. um, within a piece of work we're doing on a on the essay item. And it's you know it's hard because I don't read or write a right to left language, and it's very different to how we potentially read something. So you get into kind of uh, cases where you're discussing, well, if we flip everything right to left, um, you have a developer say, well, we've got a clock icon. Does that flip right to left? No, it probably <laughs> changes its position, but the clock still goes yeah. clockwise. Yeah. The Letters on that clock are just right to left, and that's how you. So you, it's trying to get your head around. You know, I think is it 56 languages you can actually set delivery into. I think maybe that's slightly too many, but it's a lot to think about and support. Yeah. Um, 
and that is challenging because we don't speak those languages so you have to do a lot of prior research and, yeah. and get your head around this and um ask again asking users that no yeah and it, well it, you do have to put those ideas out there to, to get validation on them don't you so you have to engage people so what else do you kind of you know it's traditional because uh, I, I imagine some people come on board have got a quite a firm process set in their in their mind does that present a bit of a challenge sometimes yeah, I think it's the, the age-old kind of comparability between paper and on-screen. Yeah. Um, you'll see a lot of people who um, are clients that kind of say, well, we don't want them, we don't want candidates to scroll. You know, and we'll put notifications in there to say, well, this page requires scrolling, etc. But then, you know, when, you, when you're working on something that is portrait A4 and then you're taking it onto a landscape yeah. kind of device screen, it's quite difficult to put all those things in and then you end up kind of crowding the interface mm. uh, with all these different kind of options to say, well, I don't want them to scroll anything. So trying to manage all that and and trying to... Um, it's almost like the, the, the delivery UI becomes invisible because, you know, personally for me, the content is king in mm. that the, the question is the thing that they need to... Yeah. to to answer um, and so all these other things just need to kind of fall away and I think sometimes we might be guilty of putting something in because we can do that uh, but it's not necessarily the right reason as to why we should do that that's the, that's the thing so. I, I was sat in a, uh, an onboarding session with a, a new customer uh, quite recently it was, it was re- I don't do it very often but it was really quite an eye-opening experience and refreshingly I think that a lot of people do come along with that kind of mindset that that we've been doing something um, uh, this way for many years, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, I suppose what's nice about Surpass is it has it's matured so much that we are finding th- there is no one route to doing assessment. There is one no no one kind of set in stone ISO standard for uh, for you know, creating your test and delivering it. Um, and there are different environments. It, it makes it quite a, a rich and engaging and interesting environment. But mm. it was nice that they were turning around and saying, look, we're open to ideas. Mm. We're, you know, we, we're happy to look at um, sort of options around that. Um, so is it, in terms of the kind of usability, universal design, is that something that um, yeah, has some challenges? Absolutely. So anytime we're uh, designing a feature that is going to be touching the delivery engine currently, we will work very closely with our accessibility team to come up with, okay, what is the parameters of this being an accessible design? Um, As you say, you try and support as many uses of that uh, feature as possible. So are you using it on a mobile device or a smaller device? Is it going to be landscape, portrait? You need to have it it react to its environment as much as possible, which I think is where... That does become hard, you know, the concept of psychometric equivalence with paper because the digital side of things allows you to do so much more uh, to support so many more people, Mm. kind of restricting yourself to saying it has to look like it's printed when it should be, you know, if I've got bad eyesight, I can can zoom into this piece of text as much as I want so I can read it. Um, That is challenging and I like working on those features because I think you have to really up your game in terms of the design, because um, little things become massive issues for some of our users. Mm. If the contrast is not quite right, that that means someone can't see it. Mm. Um, so it's good to be challenged by the accessibility team and pushed further forward in your design practice, I think, by those guys, because 
at the end of the day, there's the WCAG standards, and it's yeah. it's a it's one of the only times I think in design you have a pass fail. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's quite nice to have that. Yeah, because otherwise, <laughs> well, I suppose everything else is quite subjective. Isn't it's it? very subjective. Whereas this is, <coughs> yeah, it, it either passes or or it's a fail, and that is quite refreshing to have that. I think. And if you want to know a bit more about the accessibility side of things, uh, we did uh, only a few weeks ago actually. Uh, ben and uh, Leon got together for a, an accessibility update chat. Um, and one of the pieces that there was four documents have been generated from that team, uh, which kind of help you um, and set out our kind of accessibility agenda. So um, please do watch that. It's available to to catch up um, or listen to it on podcast as well. I'll keep saying podcast. Um, <laughs> um, it's a new thing. Uh, it's my favourite thing at the moment. Um, so sometimes it's it, it's not always perfect, is it? In terms of how we approach it. Obviously, the, the projects you, we talked about, the examples, they're kind of longer, ongoing projects where mm. we've been able to really get under the skin, do lots of research. But other times when it's just not helpful, you know, something's not quite right, is it, in terms of setup? Yeah, I think we, we have to adapt our process. I mean, you, you kind of, we go to uh, conferences around UX and, um, you know, they kind of um, evangelise about all the different processes that you need to do. You should be following this, that and the other. But when, in Agile, you have to kind of take little bits from that and kind of adapt it into your process. Yeah. Um, and so, like, we've been doing, like, a design wall and we've been doing uh, show-and-tell sessions and, and getting people to sketch things up internally and trying to find information internally, um, you know, using things like Google Analytics um Th- those kinds of things and and even down to like interaction logs you know they've been developed in a particular way that um, we we realize that we can actually use that data ourselves mm. to understand how someone is using delivery um, but yeah we we can't we can't do all of these things and so we just have to kind of tweak them and, and use bits and certain things certain techniques um, you know, like the wireframes and flows will work better for us in certain instances. Yeah, I, I think we work in an interesting industry because whilst we're working in <coughs> for our software development at BTL, there is also the external deadlines of exam, um, you know, examination dates for our clients. So if they need a feature to deliver their exam, in Agile, really, if it's if it's not fully tested and ready, you could delay that and then not release yeah. it until it's ready. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have that luxury because someone is relying on us to have that in place. Yeah. Um, so you have to be a bit of a pragmatist. And I think, you know, it's been a huge learning curve for me as a designer here, saying, well, what battles am I going to fight? I can't fight to have everything 100% tested all of the time. Um, I think there's a lot of design leaders that, get annoyed by this mantra of we say test with five users you'll kind of get 80% of the problems and and then the current conversation is no test with 200 users yeah well I'd love to do that but I you know don't have the time the team or the budget so it's it's kind of saying you know for me testing with anyone is better than testing with no one uh, and just being a realist and getting that in place and and then trying you know that's where we want to move to Yeah, yeah brilliant but you have to be I think you have to be a bit practical about how you, yeah, how you do this. Agree. Yeah, being pragmatic, isn't it? Do, does um, personal bias ever kind of come into play? Yeah, uh, yeah, quite a bit. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get people where you're kind of sat in sessions and they'll say, well, as a user, I think this, or, uh, well, I use it like this. It's like, well, they're not 
you know, you, sometimes some people are so far removed from that end user that um, it can be a bit of a challenge and it is, you know, kind of an opinion at the end of the day. And I think that's sometimes that we're, it's quite difficult to, to get to that end person. But, yeah. you know, we, you know, with working with account managers and speaking with clients, we kind of, we are getting closer to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, one, one of the pieces of personal bias we come up against here a lot um, and the design team will have their personal biases as well so we right. try to keep that in check um, and be you know conscious of that fact everyone has it you can't expect you can't escape from that yeah. but people will constantly say you know our users are, are a specialist um, in what they do so that means you know we can get rid of this usability improvement because they're clever people and they know how to use computers mm. And that's no reason to kind of, you know, make someone's process day in, day out, take an hour longer, yeah. be more frustrating. Yeah, they might be able to work out or, you know, learn to work, have workarounds in it. But that's not that's not a, a good case to say that's how it should be. Um, and I think that's one that we battle with a lot um, in in saying we want to do, we want to design for the average user. Yeah. Um, not always the specialist because the specialist can use something the average user can and if you take that data principle of letting people zoom in and um, kind of draw out the complexity in a feature then it works for everyone in that case. Yeah. There was a famous case when I, when I studied design it, it kind of the Mini Metro there was some chief executive of Mini Metro and got in the, the car and he was about seven foot tall or something and he sat there and said I don't like this it's you know, too cramped change it and the, I think as part of that process, they designed out a, you know, quite a large percentile of the potential users for the small, compact car. <laughs> Just because this seven-foot you know, <laughs> chap got in there and decided, no, 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 change it. Yeah. Um, I don't like So, yeah, I think it can be quite damaging, can't it? Uh, and it's hard. It is hard to keep it in check because everyone has their, their idea is their favourite, really, isn't it? Mm. That's the, it's always a yeah. kind of challenge. Um, so um, obviously I'm, you know, I'm working with perfection here, but do you ever <laughs> achieve perfection? You know, do you think never. you ever get that to the utopia? I, I never do. Um, you know, kind of, you might do something and uh, you know leave it for a day and then come back the next day and you're like, that's rubbish. I'm just going to go and, mm. you know, it, certainly when I was doing print work, I would print it out on an evening and leave it on my desk, come back to it the next day, and then look at it and go, I'm going to change that. Yeah. So I'd have to do it all again, but you never achieve perfection because the the, the the product is constantly changing. So and and the way that people use it, you know, you're always surprised by how people are, are using it as well. Mm. So and I think people's expectations of what their software does is constantly evolving. Um, you know, if you go back to like PowerPoint 2001 version, people were pretty happy with that at the time. But if you were to load it up and use it now, you probably be pretty horrified with it the same with the old windows operating systems Um, and I think the reason that you you know I think you look back as a designer at work you've done a year ago and you forget some of those trade-offs you've made to to win a battle over here and get that usability improvement put in you gave up on an improvement here just because of time or budget Mm. or cost Um, so you forget that and then you want to just go and back and do all of those improvements so you know but that's why I think design is interesting because it's continually evolving. Um, there's very few pieces of design produced anywhere in the world that are perfect. I think maybe the tube map was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> stood the test of time. Yeah, the things well, like yeah, that. But there are, even now, yeah, there say, are design classics, aren't there? But that was for a for a for a, a time when digital wasn't really there. So mm. trying to navigate the tube map on your on your your phone, 
yeah, that's quite hard. So, you know, you've got to rethink these things, haven't you? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think what you do is pretty damn good. Um, obviously, it's not perfection because you'd be out of a job, wouldn't you? Um, so, yeah. You know, Design complete. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can, can go now, guys. Um, so, um, I think, thank you very much for being on today. I think it's been a really kind of insight, insightful session. I, I know there's not been many questions from the, the audience, and I think we were talking before, with these kind of sessions where we're chatting, we, we, we don't get as many. Um, the, uh, if you do want to kind of find out more, you do want to ask more questions, then uh, tomorrow when we put this um, uh, webinar out and podcast out, um, and you can watch and listen, um, then we're we done an interview with Rich um, with some uh, insects and videos in from the guys as well. So you, know, you can look at what an empathy map lo looks like. Cap talks us through that. Uh, Neil's on there as well, isn't it, part of the team. So we've all been contributing as, as part of that. So uh, please do uh, have a look at that. And if you've got any questions then, um, and you're coming to the conference, then these guys will all be there. So please do uh, call them and, uh, and ask away. They, they love to talk about this stuff. Um, once again, thank you for everyone for listening and watching today. Just a reminder of those events that are coming up soon. So we've got the CNG Washington, which is next week. So if you're in the Washington area, get yourself along. I'll be there. Um, there might be some of the members of the US team out there as well. I've not confirmed that one just yet. Um, at the end of the month, we've got EATP over in Madrid. So you can still get tickets for that. And Rich, you'll be doing your uh, five minutes um, presentation, uh, Ignite session to the whole yeah. delegation on the subject of user experience. Are you looking forward to that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one take, Rich, that's the, that's the way to me. And uh, otherwise, FAB, Federation of Warning Body Conference, uh, down in Leicester, uh, please do come along to that. There's also other events coming up, like uh, ICE in San Diego, uh, and there's the Beyond Multiple Choice Conference uh, in Washington, so please do watch that. But thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for watching. Uh, watching. Thank you for watching and listening. <laughs> I nearly had it all perfect there. It was almost <laughs> perfect. Thank you very much and goodbye.